0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us by your word clearly, that uh, we might know uh, right uh, where we are with you. And uh, Lord, there's no greater joy on this earth to know that uh, we belong to you. And Lord, that you would impress that truth deep upon our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to follow along with me, Matthew chapter 16, page 822 in your pew Bibles. This morning we're going to talk about where do I stand uh, with Jesus, which really is the ultimate question that will determine everything about your life in this world and your life in the next. And it is a question that Jesus puts to his disciples. It's a question that he puts uh, to us. Uh, it's a question that uh, shows up throughout the entirety of the New Testament, even in sort of left-handed ways. Uh, you know, Pilate, what, what shall I do with this Jesus? Um, and, and it comes up here in a rather famous passage when Jesus and his disciples make their way to Caesarea Philippi. So I'm reading chapter 16, beginning with the 13th verse. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of God, the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Okay, so what is Jesus doing in Caesarea Philippi? Uh, most of y'all uh, probably uh, don't know much about Caesarea Philippi, uh, but it's basically if the cloister and Blackberry Farms got together and created Las Vegas. It would make Vegas a whole lot nicer, right? No doubt about that. Uh, But it is a resort area in the north of Israel that one of the Herods developed. Uh, It's really beautiful. It's the headwaters of the Jordan. So if and when you go to Caesarea Philippi, you can actually stand where the Jordan River begins. And uh, it really was a place that Jews did not go to. But lots of uh, pagan... Uh, Romans uh, flocked uh, up there. In fact, uh, in Roman mythology, they began to develop uh, a story that in the, there's this cave, and uh, that's the cave that they believe that the, the man-god Pan was born. You know Pan, um, half-goat, half-man sort of uh, guy running around, and, uh, and they would often make sacrifices uh, in the cave, and they would throw uh, the the goat or whatever it was that they sacrificed, to the back of the cave. And if they didn't see the the spring that came out the, the bottom side of the hill, if they did not see red, it meant that the gods accepted the sacrifice. If they saw red, the remnants of the blood of the sacrifice coming out, it meant that the gods uh, didn't receive the sacrifice. So it was a center of pagan worship, and if you go there today, there's still ruins of all these temples all over the place uh, where ritual acts would take place, but probably the most astounding thing is that when you get to the cave and you stand in the sort of center of this complex at Caesarea Philippi, up in this rock wall, uh, which is pretty substantial, uh, it's not something that you just shimmy up, it's, it's like a, almost looks a little bit like a smaller version of Stone Mountain, There are all of these niches in the wall. And within these niches at one time would be idols of gods placed in them. And this is the context in which Jesus is asking the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, initially, he's talking about the theological understanding of who the Son of Man is that the Old Testament talks about. And so they give a theological answer, uh, or I should say a Bible answer, And they say, some say, some interpret that as John the Baptist, others will interpret it as Elijah, and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he says, well, that's all well and good, but I want to know who you say that I am. Now, there's Jesus asking this question, who do you say that I am? And there, the backdrop is a bunch of idols and temples uh, to pagan gods. It's a pretty stark... Uh, contrast that Jesus is creating here. And the only reason for a Jew to go that far up, it's almost almost in what is now Lebanon. The only reason to go up there is so Jesus can say, I want you to understand just how different I am. And not just that, but following me has implications for your life, uh, of what it means to come after me. And so Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, uh, always the first guy in the classroom to have his hand up, and what he uh, lacks in knowledge he makes up for in confidence, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, that's the right answer. Uh, That's the right answer. And uh, even though we don't have places that we can go to uh, where there are little niches, and uh, we can see uh, idolatry on full display. Uh, although those, there are many of us who are sensitive to that, and uh, we can sort of smell it out pretty quickly. That, well, wow, this is pretty idolatrous, whatever that thing might be. Uh, I won't mention SEC football or anything like that. Uh, but, but there you have it. Um, but we don't have these obvious things. Like it's not you don't go into somebody's home and 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 you see you know this you know figure of venus and you don't assume oh that's the goddess they worship right that that doesn't happen anymore our idols are are harder to see and in fact may, may not be physical things they may be uh any number of things but nonetheless i think that that being a christian and uh knowing where you are with jesus uh is just, provides just as much a contrast today as it did in Simon Peter's day. Because we all have lots of options around us when it comes to faith. And even people who say, I don't believe in anything, do believe in something. There has to be some sort of guiding principle to their lives, even if that's just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's, that's actually a religious creed. Uh, that, that's, that's how somebody is saying, this is, the sort, this is my belief system, and out of my belief system is, uh, is going to be my behavior. And so what you believe is of paramount importance to how you live in this world and what will happen in the next. And so Peter sees this catalog of gods, but there he has Jesus standing in front of him. Now, I do think that it gets a little bit convoluted in our day and age because there are a bunch of versions of Jesus out there. I think Jesus kind of alludes to that here. You know, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But actually, Jesus himself is the Son of Man. And there's nothing wrong with... uh, the people that he mentions, I mean, there's obviously nothing wrong with John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or any of the prophets, uh, but to elevate any of them to the status uh, of the Messiah, of the one that that has been promised to come and deliver his people, uh, is idolatry. And I think that sometimes we have an idea of Jesus uh, within our culture or multiple ideas of Jesus that really isn't Jesus himself. It's actually a good version of Jesus, not a lot to argue with about these versions of Jesus, except that it's not quite up to snuff. Uh, It's actually, it's as great as John the Baptist and Elijah and Jeremiah are, uh, they don't have the power to save you. They don't have the power to change your life. They can give you lots of, of helpful hints, and so one version of this might be that Jesus is simply a teacher. Right, that Jesus provides a great moral example for us to follow in this world. Now, on its face, is there anything wrong with that? Golly, the world would be a much better place if we all were a whole lot more like Jesus and modeled our lives after him. But is that all he is? Uh, you know, I, Paul said this. Paul said that if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, we are all... Uh, above all, most to be pitied as Christians. And so if Jesus was never raised from the dead, we're all wasting our time here this morning. You know, we can have a much nicer brunch. Uh, it, the weather, even though it's a little bit foggy, it's warm enough to play golf. Uh, you, could have, you could spend your time doing any other number of things. Uh, but the bottom line is that is that if you simply reduce Jesus as a teacher, uh, this doesn't really become worthwhile. Several years ago, uh, in a clergy person in an Easter sermon said in their Easter sermon, if they found Jesus' bones in Jerusalem, it wouldn't affect my faith in the least. I would still be a Christian. What would you say to that? If they found, you know, National Geographic said, we found the bones of Jesus, it turns out uh, he was not raised from the dead. I am bypassing the cloister, Blackberry Farms, and I'm making my way straight to Vegas, right? That's where I'm going. But what this person was saying is that it doesn't really matter uh, if Jesus is anything more than a teacher because I can still build my life around the teachings of Jesus, and I would say that the teachings of Jesus only have any power in and of themselves because of who it is that's giving those teachings. Now, we all have people in our lives, I hope you have these people in your lives, uh, who are full of wisdom and you seek them out and, and you, want, you want to hear what they have to say in any given situation. I, I have those people. But even sometimes when I go to these people who I, I find very wise, uh, they'll say things to me and in the back of my mind as I'm processing what they're saying, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Why? Because I know that this person is a human being. uh, and And they're fallible. And also, isn't it when you're trying to get some advice from someone or wisdom, that there's a part of you that you begin to realize, because of what they're saying, they actually don't have any idea what I'm going through right now. And it's very hard for me to receive what they're saying because they're not able to speak into the situation. But we have a God who was tempted in every way that we are and yet did not sin. That Jesus has actually experienced what it is to be human without sinning. And people may say, well, that's because he's God and and that's easy for him and and it must have been a real breeze. But let me ask you how you struggle or or deal with temptation. If you are overwhelmed uh, with temptation. Uh, it's a bit like a spiritual tug of war that I think that all of you can identify with in your hearts. Uh, whatever vice it is that you struggle with uh, or, you know, it's one of those things where I, I could you a real-life example. Is Lauren here? I could do it. So, because um, this doesn't get recorded or anything. Uh, but I-, I have a hard time keeping my mouth shut. And Lauren will come into the house or come into the room And I can tell by her disposition that things are not going well, and I can see the storm clouds gathering on the horizon, but I know that if I just don't say whatever it is, the storm will pass over, and then what do I do? I say exactly what it is I'm not supposed to say. And then the thunder and the lightning come, and I've actually made things much worse. And I am struggling. It's just, Andrew, just be quiet. Just be quiet. Just be quiet. And then I give way. The person who doesn't give way actually struggles the most. Think about that. If you just give way... Even if you struggle a little bit, you're really not, you know, your struggle comes to an end. You've given yourself over to whatever the temptation is. But if you withstand the temptation, and there are times, by God's grace, I've been able to do it, where she comes in, the storm clouds are gathering, and I'm really biting my lip, literally. Just be quiet. And even when she's gone, there's still a part of me that says, but I still need to get the last word in. And actually, I'm struggling. My struggle there is greater. And so when it says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet did not sin, it means that Jesus' struggle is greater than anything that we've ever dealt with when it comes to temptation because he didn't give in. And so when we hear Jesus' words, um, I'm sorry, I just looked at the back and there's a man with a bagpipe um, standing in the back which doesn't happen often. It's Kirkin of the Tartan this morning at 11 for those of you that will be here. And so the the reason why we're able to receive Jesus' teaching, it doesn't mean that we don't struggle with it, uh, but the reason why we're able to receive it and to say, wow, this person is teaching with authority is because of who he is as God incarnate that he really is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter absolutely nails it and says, you know, you're you're more than just a teacher, although you are that. uh, But you're the Messiah, the Christ. I mean, for the longest time as a kid growing up, I thought Christ was just Jesus' last name. I'd never thought about that that actually is a, a title that is given to Jesus He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one that has come to save. And not only that, he's the son of the living God. Now, we're children of God because of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's he's done for us, Uh, but not in this way. This is something different. And Peter is bringing that up. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We talked about this last week, but it's worth bringing up again that Simon has come to the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what he's come to do, not because he's put it all together in his brain. Although certainly the mind has something to do with it. And that's one of the things I think is appealing about Christianity is that it does appeal to the mind. It doesn't say you have to leave your mind at the door, but actually Jesus engages the mind. And Christianity is a religion that has a lot of ideas with implications. And so it's a thinker's religion. It's not a doer's religion. It's a thinker's religion. But for Simon to understand this, there has to be some sort of outside intervention from God to open Simon's eyes to who Jesus Christ is, and that's true of each and every single one of us. If you're a Christian here this morning, it's because God has intervened in your life at some point in order to open your eyes to his grace, and it may be that you're like C.S. Lewis who uh, looks back at his life, and he said that it was as as if the hounds of heaven had been nipping at my heels all along. But it wasn't until God opened my eyes to who he was that I was able to actually discern that it was God pursuing me all along. In fact, many of us feel like, well, I have been, I pursued God and I, I found God, but then once you find him, you realize that actually he was pursuing you all along. And that's the nature of grace, isn't it? Jesus tells a lot of stories about this. One of his most famous is the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story. The younger brother says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now. And then I'm going to go squander it on loose living, and, uh, and I'll see you when I see you, if at all. So the son goes and does that. The son comes to his senses, and he comes back. The father races, greets him at the horizon, uh, throws uh, his robe on, a ring, Uh, shoes, kills the fatted calf, has a party. The older brother comes in from work and says, what's going on here? The servants tell him. uh, The older brother is really, really beside himself to the point that we actually don't know whether the older brother ever comes into the party that the father has invited him into. Now, when Jesus hears the Pharisees and the scribes who had gathered around him um, and they were grumbling about he eats with sinners and tax collectors, Uh, This was a story directed at them, not the sinners and the tax collectors. Because the sinners and tax collectors, they got it. They were on board with Jesus. They They had an understanding of grace. But this story has a lot of layers to it. One, the Pharisees and scribes obviously being the older brothers, and Jesus is saying, I have come and I'm inviting you to the party. Will you come in and join me? And just throws it at their feet. But the other thing that they would have known, because they were very traditional people, is that when the son, the younger son, went off to squander the inheritance, according to Jewish custom, there was someone in the family who was supposed to have gone after them. The older brother. And yet, what did the older brother do when the younger brother went off? He thought he was doing his duty. I've served you all my life. I've done what is expected of me, and you've not given me anything. And what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and scribes is, you should be the ones going after the sinners and tax collectors. But better yet, not only am I the gracious Father who embraces this son who has returned, who once was dead, once was lost, but now was found, once was dead, but now is alive. I'm also the older brother who's been sent into the world, who not only embraces sinners who come home, but I go to the pigsties and get them out. That's, That's what's happening in the ministry of Jesus, and that's what Peter has come to understand that, Jesus, you've come uh, for me. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Sorry, it's the bagpipes. And so he says, I tell, you that, I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, he's not talking about Peter as a personal uh, entity here uh, that, that somehow developed into what we now have as the Pope. Uh, He's talking about Peter's confession of faith. It's this confession of faith that I am going to build my church upon. But now look at verse 21 on. who got it right. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God who now completely blows it with Jesus because Jesus says, this is what it looks like for my Messiahship to be manifested and what the son of the living God and the son of man came to do. And that's for me to be handed over to suffering and death and to be raised on the third day. But Peter says, but that's not my idea of Jesus. That's not what I need you to be doing uh, in, in my life. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You know, people haven't changed since the dawn of time. Uh, and Peter is, is a pretty good uh, uh, caricature of many of us today uh, who, once again, this is Peter, where he's, he's got it right. He's able to give the Sunday school answer. All right, the answer is always Jesus. He gives the Sunday school answer. Uh, but then you start to dig below the surface, and he's not exactly who, sh- who Jesus is. He's not, quite, he's not quite sure. And so there's actually a disconnect between his head and his heart. Because you see, he, in the first answer, he's engaging his mind and he gives the right thing. But listen to the emotion in his answer when Jesus says, I have to die. Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. This is where Peter's heart begins to speak into the situation, which means I believe it in my mind, but I'm not sure how this is going to work out in my heart. Uh, John Wesley, who, uh, if you don't know who John Wesley is, I hope you go home and Google him. Uh, But John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist movement, uh, and in spite of what everybody says, I hope you know that John Wesley died a priest in the Church of England. He never left the Church uh, of England, although he commissioned... Uh, evangelists and missionaries to come to the United States uh, to, um, to perpetuate the Methodist movement, which for many, many decades was a movement within the Church of England and Anglicanism within uh, the life of our uh, nation. But John Wesley went off to uh, Oxford, and he and some others started a group called the Holy Club, uh, which, as you can imagine, didn't attract too many people. Uh, But the people who were there were pretty important. John, his brother Charles, and George Whitfield was also a part of this club. And they did really great things. They woke up early in the morning, and they went to uh, prayers, and they read their Bibles. They visited uh, orphanages. They went to prisons and visited uh, the prisoners there. Uh, they did all kinds of wonderful and great things, and uh, John felt a call to ordination, and so he was ordained uh, at Christ Church Cathedral there in Oxford, and his brother, Charles, had secured a job as secretary to Oglethorpe uh, in Georgia, uh, which, if you're from Georgia, no offense, but was a penal colony uh, at the time, uh, and if it, if it weren't for the American Revolution, Australia never would have happened. Do you understand that? That's for Mike Weeks, wherever you are, Mike Weeks. Uh, Australia would never have happened because they couldn't send their criminals to Georgia anymore. They had to go to Australia. So Charles came over as, a, um, as secretary to Oglethorpe, and John secured a missionary position and became the rector of Christ Church, which is still there today. And while he was, uh, on, the, uh, while he was uh, on a boat, either to or from, I'm, I'm mixing it up right now, he encountered some Moravians, and uh, more than just making really good cookies this time of year and, and, and making decorative stars to hang over your doorsteps, uh, while he was aboard the ship, a huge storm came up, and John Wesley lost his ever-loving mind. He had a total come apart, and he thought, "This is how I die." And he looked over, and there were the Moravians praying, and singing, and reading their Bibles. And he went to them and said, What do you have that I don't have? His time in Savannah was, was not good. He fell in love with a woman in the congregation uh, who did not reciprocate, but instead became engaged to another man. And as a result, John, as the rector of Christ Church, excommunicated them both. Um, that was basically his last Sunday at Christ Church. Uh, he got ridden out of town on a rail, and uh, like most people who'd get ridden out of town on a rail in Savannah, the only place he could preach was South Carolina, and so he went over to South Carolina and preached there for a little bit before he finally made his way home, and the thing with the Moravians never, never left him. So when he got back, he realized, I don't think I'm a Christian And he knew that there was a group of Moravians on Aldersgate Street, which is in the city of London over by St. Paul's. And he made his way to one of their meeting houses. And there, he said, he heard someone reading from Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. And while he was hearing Luther's words and thoughts on the Epistle to the Romans, John Wesley said that he felt his heart strangely warmed. And for the first time in his life, he knew he was a Christian. Now this is a person who grew up, he was the son of a pastor. Uh, John and Charles's father uh, was a, a rector in the Church of England uh, over in the eastern side of the country. Had a godly mother uh, who prayed for her children. She had a thousand children. Uh, but Susanna Wesley had a particular affection for John because the rectory uh, burned when they were Uh, when they were little children and everybody got out of the house and she's counting heads and realized John was not there and someone very quickly put a ladder up to a window and John somehow as a two or three year old boy was able to make his way out and they got him out of the window and so for the rest of her life she referred to John as the one who was snatched you know the, the brand snatched from the fire and felt like God's hand was on John And John would go off and he would do many holy things and start the holy club and he would even be ordained. He would even be a missionary and pastor a church in Savannah, Georgia. And yet that whole time he was not a Christian. If you asked him, are you a Christian? He would say, of course I am. But what John realized when he was sitting in that pew or chair at Aldersgate is that it was all up here for him. And somehow, that information needed to make the supernatural transfer into his heart and captivate his life. And what a difference that makes. And ultimately this would happen with Simon Peter. And for those of us who grew up in the United States, we get a lot of information about who Jesus is stuffed into our minds, so much so that if someone said, "Well, can you tell me what the gospel is?" we'd be able to sh- we'd be able to to give Bible verses out. And yet many people would say, even though I know all of this stuff, I'm not sure sure how it has any impact on my life. I don't know what kind of difference it makes in my life. And the eight inches between the head and the heart uh, might as well be a billion miles. In fact, it may be, someone has once said this, it's the farthest distance of anything on earth, to be able to connect uh, those two. And when Jesus actually does, you make that transfer where it goes from head knowledge to heart knowledge. Now, I, I do want to say that I think that there are those who, who start out with the heart. Uh, I think that there, I, that actually is a little bit more my story. Uh, but for most of us, it starts with the head and moves to the heart. And um, and that's why i think that we spend so much time here preaching at the advent i hope you notice this preaching to the heart i mean it's amazing to me how many people visit us and they'll come up to me after a sermon or write me an email and say i can't believe you went there i can't believe you you said that i mean it's probably the only church in birmingham if not the nation where you know frank limehouse's first sunday frank Uh, had as his reading, the tail end of Romans 7 into Romans 8, where therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And leading up to that, Paul's talking about the very thing I want to do is the thing I cannot do, and the very thing I don't want to do is what I find myself doing. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And Frank in his sermon said, you know, some of the lewdest and most unchristian thoughts that I've ever had in my life or when I've gone and kneeled at the communion rail. That's kind of shocking, isn't it? I mean, it makes me a little bit nervous to hear a pastor say those kind of things. Uh, but somebody who was there listening said, it was like a wave of relief went through the congregation because they realized he's one of us. Right? He's one of us. He, he understands. Because when Jesus gets a hold of your heart, there is a transparency that that allows, knowing that we're all in the same boat you don't have to pretend anymore because you've given yourself wholly over to the Lord Jesus Christ and you know that in Him is your only hope in this world and the next. And when that happens, things start to pale in comparison. You actually begin to have a godly perspective on your life when you find your heart strangely warmed. I mean, this is the story of Peter. Peter struggled his entire life. He denied Jesus to the little girl and and two others, and then uh, he did some goofy things uh, moving forward, even after his reconciliation with Jesus, Uh, and even at the close of his life. The story goes, I don't think there's any reason to disbelieve it, Uh, but Peter was leaving Rome because of a great persecution that had broken out, and Peter rationalized, I've got to get out of here so that the gospel can continue. And the story goes that Peter is riding outside of, Jerusalem, outside of Rome and he gets to a place where he audibly hears Jesus' voice ask the question, Peter, where are you going? And Peter turned the horse around, went back into Rome and was, of course, crucified for his faith in Jesus. But does anybody know how he was crucified? Upside down upside down because he said that he was not even worthy to be executed in the same manner as the Lord Jesus and so he was crucified upside down Uh, that's a life that looks a lot like mine I I struggle uh, all the time uh, but it's a life that's been captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, so I, I pray this morning that when Jesus asks you who do you say that I am that you would say you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, but you would also understand what that means, that Jesus, you're my everything. You're my all in all. I have no existence apart from you, and I give myself wholly over to you uh, because you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, we thank you that your gospel speaks to many nations. uh, Just as I hear this, Piper, Lord, uh, It's remarkable to me that the gospel that that brings us to faith is the gospel that that brought uh, so many to faith uh, in Scotland so many years ago with the Covenanters and and the ministry of Knox and, and others. And Lord, that you would do it again in our day. That you would break open hearts and that those of us who simply carry around a head knowledge about Jesus would have it seep down deep and that we would feel our hearts strangely warmed And that we would not only have the head knowledge that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, but that we would be given the heart knowledge that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.